So um, the songs have already very much exposed us to the topic that we're going to be looking at this morning, but we're going to be looking at contentment. Um, And we're going to be seeing that in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. So I'm actually going to have you turn there now, and we'll start by reading the passage. Uh, If you have one of the the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 982 in those Bibles. But again, if you could turn to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, I'm going to read that for us, and I want you to follow along as I read that. All right. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13 say this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So again, like I said, we're going to be looking at contentment this morning. Um, And few songs speak to that subject better than the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, We'll be singing that actually after uh, my sermon is over. And I asked Ben specifically to have us do that song after the sermon because I wanted to make sure you guys knew the history behind it. Um, Some of you might already know it, but others of you might not. And the song is remarkable by itself, but it is even more powerful when you know what led to its creation. Um, So if you don't know, it, It Is Well With My Soul was written by Horatio Spafford, a lawyer and businessman from Chicago in the late 1800s. Uh, He had a very successful career, and he and his wife, Anna, they had five kids uh, who they adored. They had four daughters and a son. However, life started to change drastically for the family in 1871. Um, That year began with the death of their four-year-old son to an infection. Um, They lost their son in 1871. And then, later that year, in October, uh, the Great Chicago Fire happened. Um, And they were affected by that. They lived in Chicago, and the family was financially ruined by the fire. Um, Could you imagine how devastating just that year by itself must have been for them? Imagine losing a child and then losing nearly all of your earthly wealth and possessions. That was the state that they found themselves at the end of 1871. But it got worse. In 1873, just two years later, Anna was traveling with their four daughters by boat to cross the Atlantic to go to Europe. And Horatio was actually supposed to be on the ship with them, but he had to stay back because uh, he, he got stuck back because of work. Well, while at sea, their ship collided with another ship and it sank. There were 313 people on board, and nearly 250 of them died, four of them being all four of the Spafford's daughters. So they had already lost their son, and all of their 
earthly stability, and then they lost all four of the rest of their children. And uh, nearly Anna died as well, but she survived and was brought to Europe, and she had to telegram her husband to tell him what had happened. Uh, he got on the next ship and sailed to join her, um, as you would expect. And while at sea, traveling over the same stretch of ocean where his daughters drowned, he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Think about that as we sing that song later. Here's a man whose name might as well be Job. I mean, he's basically facing the same circumstances that Job went through. Not only has he lost almost all of his earthly possessions, but even worse, he's lost every one of his five children. And again, he nearly lost his wife too. And all of that in the span of less than three years. It's hard to even imagine the grief that Horatio and Anna must have felt. And that makes it all the more astounding that he wrote a song from the midst of his grief that starts like this. You probably know the first uh, verse, but just think about the grief they must have been feeling and then to write these lines. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, and it was a terrible one, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, that is what our verses are about this morning. If you want a picture of what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, that is it. That is the rare and precious jewel known as Christian contentment. And I phrase it that way, um, and naming my sermon that, um, as a tribute to the Puritan author, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, Some of you, I'm sure, already know this, but he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, um, and it's actually an in-depth study of the very passage we're looking at this morning. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. I read it um, this week as preparation for the sermon, and it was extraordinarily helpful for me. And the reason I encourage you to read it is the same reason that Paul wrote these verses. Paul wants us to know the same peace and contentment that Horatio Spafford knew. He wants us to be able to say, it is well with my soul, no matter what our circumstances are. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that you are content and satisfied with everything in your life? If you can, maybe you should be the one up here preaching, because I definitely can't say that. Honestly, I didn't really want to preach this passage today. Um, I feel like a hypocrite standing up here before you guys talking about it. Most of what I'm going to be saying this morning is the fruit of self-reflection on pretty much everything that I've been doing wrong lately, not what I've been doing right. Lately, I felt as far from content as one can practically be. There are so many things in my life that I wish were different, Um, I wonder if I'll ever be okay with some of them, but I want to be. I want to be content, and I want to help you guys know contentment too. So let's, let's learn from Paul together this morning. To do that, 
I want us to consider two questions. And so those are going to be basically my two points for this sermon this morning. The first one is what is Christian contentment? So that's what we're going to spend a little bit more than the majority of our time looking at is just what is Christian contentment? And then my second point is how can we achieve that? So you know where we're going. Let's work our way through that. So my first point is, what is Christian contentment? Now notice that I don't just say contentment by itself. I say Christian contentment. And I say that because I will argue that only Christians can experience the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about and that we see displayed through the life and song written by Horatio Spafford. And I know that might seem offensive or even arrogant to some of you, especially if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian. If that is you, please hear me out. My hope is that the rest of this sermon will help you see why that is true, that this kind of contentment is a uniquely Christian experience. And I'm not trying to flaunt Christian superiority or just hold something over your head that you can't experience. I want you to feel this contentment as well. Um, so I hope that you'll see that this morning as we work our way through the text. But with that said, let me show you what I mean as we work our way. So look back at, with me again at the passage, specifically at verses 10 through 11. Paul wrote this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, beyond this passage, we know from verse 18, which will be preached on next week, we can piece together the fact that Paul, what Paul is talking about here. Paul is thanking the Philippians for a financial offering that they had collected and sent to him by Epaphroditus. Paul is incredibly grateful to them for it, particularly because he knows how sacrificial it must have been for them to give it. We don't necessarily know this from this passage itself, but from history, we know that the Philippian church was one of the poorest churches that Paul worked with. And yet, as we see in verse 15, again, will be preached on later, they are the only church that helped him financially in his ministry one of the poorest ones, and they were the only one that helped him. This gift blows him away. He's so appreciative of it, and he feels their love through it. And that's key to helping us understand verse 11, because at first glance, you might think that Paul is actually minimizing their gift. Imagine yourself giving a friend some money, and they respond with, thanks. I mean, I don't really need it, but, but thanks anyways. Um, wouldn't that bother you? Wouldn't, wouldn't it seem that they're being unappreciative of that? Um, and it almost kind of seems like that's what Paul is saying. I mean, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's saying, you, you were so, finances were so tight for a while that you couldn't give an offering, but as soon as you could, you did. But, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. So, thank you, but 
I don't actually need it. So it seems like he's being unappreciative almost. But that isn't what Paul means or even what the Philippians would have heard him saying. He's saying that he didn't need it because he doesn't want them to think that his gratitude is merely the product of desperation. No, he wants them to know, I'm not desperate for this. So I appreciate this gift, not because of my circumstances, but because I love you and I see your love for me through it. His comment is actually meant to enhance the gratitude that he's trying to express, not diminish it. And it's in that verse that Paul is transitioning to the heart of his message on contentment here. So at this point, I think it's helpful to define what Christian contentment is, and you'll see where Paul, how Paul comes to that conclusion. Now, I do want to reference again uh, Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He defines Christian contentment himself in that, and he defines it this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You got that? I love his definition, but in typical Puritan style, it is very wordy and tough to remember. The Puritans were not known for their brevity. Um, So I want to define Christian contentment a little bit more simply in maybe a way that's a little bit more helpful for you to remember. Um, So I will define Christian contentment for the rest of the sermon in this way. Christian contentment is a confidence in and gratitude for God's gracious will. Let me say that again. Christian contentment is a confidence in and gratitude for God's gracious will. Now notice something. Notice what's missing from that definition. Something that when we typically think of contentment is immediately what our minds gravitate towards, but it's completely missing from this definition. Christian contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances or earthly things. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Friends, Paul is saying, no matter what circumstances I find myself in, no matter what I have or what I lack in earthly possessions, I can and will be content. The secret to true contentment is that it isn't found in satisfying our earthly desires at all. Now, my dog is actually a great example of what Paul is talking about here. So, many of you have met her already, but my dog, her name's Lily, she loves going on walks absolutely loves them. She, um, she, of course, just generally loves going outside. She loves being, going out on my balcony and kind of just sitting there and looking out at nothing. Um, she just loves being outside, but she, it's pretty much her favorite thing in the world to go on walks. Uh, if I'm standing by the door and just holding her leash, 
she starts to go crazy because she knows what's coming next. And if you met Lily, that's probably weird for you to hear because she's one of the most mellow dogs in the world, but she goes nuts when she knows she's going out for a walk. I can't even say the word outside or she goes crazy. You can ask Mike, it's true. And, and here's the thing, her excitement for walks isn't affected by the weather at all. It could be sunny, cloudy, windy, rainy, snowing, hot, cold, whatever it is outside, it does not matter to her. She wants to go walk in it. Even when it's so cold that her paws hurt and she can barely walk, she wants to go outside. And I'm not kidding, I've literally needed to pick her up and carry her inside at times because she wants to stay out there when she can't even feel her feet anymore. Um, I've, I've had to pick her up and carry her in. And my point is this. Her ultimate desire is going on walks. She's a very simple creature. Because of that, it does not matter to her at all what the conditions or circumstances are around her as long as a walk is happening. As long as she gets what she ultimately wants, it doesn't matter what else is happening. Paul was the same way, except for the whole going on walks thing. Paul's thing was Jesus. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is verses 7 through 10. Paul says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, notice that, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's ultimate desire and ambition in life was to make much of Jesus. He wanted to use his life for his Savior's sake. He wanted nothing more to, than to be with him. We saw that back in Philippians 1. Remember that incredible verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Nothing sums up the way Paul viewed his life better than that. Than that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He wants to be with Jesus, but when he's alive, he wants to live for him. That is why Paul could be content in hunger or plenty, need or abundance, because his heart was set ultimately on Christ, not on those things. It didn't matter to him what his earthly circumstances were as long as he could have Jesus. And that, my friends, is why Christian contentment satisfies when all else fails. That's why what I was talking about before the contentment that we see displayed through Horatio Spafford, that's a uniquely Christian experience. Not only does it arise from it, excuse me, not only does it rise above circumstantial contentment, but Christian contentment is always possible because the Christian can never and will never lose Christ. Listen to Hebrews 13. 
verses five and six. It says this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see that? He's so, the author of Hebrews is very straightforward. He calls us, be content. Why? How can we be? Because God says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's quoting Joshua 1 right there. And if that's not trustworthy enough for you, consider Jesus' own words in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Redeemer, this is the foundation of Christian contentment. We can always be content as Christians because we always know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. God the Father promised it and Jesus his son has fulfilled it. Jesus did not go to the cross with the hope that he may or may not save us. No, he did it because he knew that with his death he would be, you would be given eternal life as surely as he would rise from the grave three days later. He secured your salvation 2,000 years ago. And the moment you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, that salvation was sealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And it can never be taken away from you. God himself guards that in you. He guards you. Think about the book of Revelation. In it, we see this incredible scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb when he takes the church as his bride. Friends, if you have placed your hope in Christ, he has promised himself to you in marriage. Look forward to that day because he will fulfill that promise. You can know that the day will come when all of your fears, all of your worries, all of your disappointments and losses and longings will be washed away because all of those things, all of the desires that you have for earthly things, those are just small foretastes of the, the wants and needs that Christ is ultimately meant to satisfy and fulfill for you. You are designed to find your ultimate contentment in him. And so when you stand before him, all of those longings and unfulfilled desires will be met and satisfied in him. You will be raised to glory in Christ, and as you stand in his presence, you will know a satisfaction and a fulfillment and a contentment, a pleasure that you have never even known was possible. That is what awaits you in Jesus. And we get foretastes of that joy in this life. That is what our contentment in this life can be. He will be the source of all your contentment, just as he was always meant to be. As Revelation 22 verse 5 gives us this amazing picture and that I think sums up what I'm talking about so well. In Revelation 22 verse 5 it says this, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I love that picture of just as the sun just shines down on us and gives us warmth. Life is possible because of the sun in the sky from, from its light and energy that it provides us. There won't be need for the sun or for any other light anymore because Jesus will be that source of life and everything that we need at that point. It's incredible to think about. I said earlier that Christian contentment is a confidence in and gratitude for God's gracious will. Do you see why I define it that way now? As long as we are confident in God's grace and promise that Jesus will never leave nor forsake us, then we can be content. You might face terrible affliction in this life. Seriously, you might actually lose everything, including your very life itself. Even so, because Jesus will never leave nor forsake you, you can be sure that any and every, and I mean every, perceived loss or disappointment that you have in this life will be proven to be gain when you enter his presence. On a daily basis, God is withholding things from you, even good things, so that your appetite for him would not be spoiled. It's like he's making sure you don't snack now because he's providing you a banquet later. Every longing that goes unfulfilled now will be met and satisfied by him one day. That is Christian contentment, knowing and believing that. But what does it look like to practice that? How can we achieve such contentment? That's the question I want us to turn our attention to now. Let's think about the actual practice of contentment itself. Now, since we haven't given it much attention yet, look with me at Philippians 4, verse 13. Um, It says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of the most famous and quoted verses in the entire Bible. Many non-Christians even, people who aren't even very familiar with the Bible, probably know that verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Unfortunately, though, it is also one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. So many people look at that verse by itself and they don't pay attention to its context. But you guys, context matters. We have to pay attention to context as we read the Bible or we'll hear it saying things that it doesn't necessarily say. People see this verse by itself and they take it to mean that God can help us overcome every hardship that comes our way as long as we just believe. It's one of the anthems of the prosperity gospel. That isn't at all what Paul is talking about, though. Remember, he's talking about contentment, not overcoming hardship in this passage. He was literally just talking about being content in hunger and need, not being rid of those two things. No, Paul is not promising that God will empower you to overcome your trials. Instead, he's promising that God will empower you to be content in them. That's a big difference. 
Yes, God may help you overcome them. I'm not saying that he won't do that. God has ultimate sovereignty and ultimate power over everything in the universe. He can easily help you overcome any trial, any hardship, any struggle that you have in your life. And he does that for people all of the time. God very easily can do that. But what I'm saying is that he's not guaranteeing that with this promise here. What he's guaranteeing is he can provide you the strength to be content in whatever the circumstances you face are. We've got to understand this verse rightly. God knows that it is better for us to be content in him rather than be comfortable in our circumstances. And I start answering the question of how do we achieve Christian contentment by pointing that out because it shows the kind of disposition we need to have if we're going to be content in our hardships. To achieve contentment, we have to begin to learn to endure suffering. I'm not saying that we should enjoy it. Suffering is by definition unpleasant. So I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying enjoy the suffering that, you're, that you face. What I am saying is your goal should not be to end your suffering as quickly as possible. It should not be to run from whatever makes you uncomfortable. Your suffering and discomfort are not actually your enemies. Your own heart is. We've got to get this. Your discontent heart is far more dangerous to you than any suffering is. Your sinful discontentment could earn you hell if you don't wage war against it. Therefore, when suffering starts, focus on finding contentment in it before you focus on trying to, to end that suffering. So that's first. That's the disposition we want to seek to have if we want to find contentment in our lives. But what next? How do we actually pursue contentment once we make it our priority? There are two key steps that I want to point out to you. First, pray for spirit-given affection for Christ. Let me say that again. If you want to pursue contentment, pray for spirit-given affection for Christ. If you aren't content, your issue is not that you have a rough life. It's that you have an affection problem. So the first question you need, you need to ask yourself is, what do I really want Try, try that out right now. Ask yourself that. What do you wish for right now? What is one thing in your life that if that one thing was different, if this one thing was better, then you would be happy and satisfied? What's that one change you, you wish happened? Maybe for you it's singleness. Maybe it's conflict with a family member that you want to end. Maybe it's financial worries. Maybe it's your physical appearance. Maybe it's something else. It's going to be different things for everyone. But what is that thing? What is, that, what is it that you long for? That If I just had that change, I would be happy and satisfied. Recognize that whatever that thing is, you have just recognized an idol in your life. That is something that is contending for your affection and love. And at times, it's winning out over Jesus Christ. 
that affection for it, not your lack of having that thing, is why you are not content. You are hoping for that rather than hoping in Jesus who already meets all of your needs. So pray that the Holy Spirit would grant you a deep and abiding affection for Jesus above all else. That is not a feeling you can just manufacture for yourself. Ask him, the Holy Spirit, to increase your love for Christ. If you are here and you're not a Christian, this is especially important for you. I want you to know true contentment. Even more, I want you to know and experience the love of Christ. So ask the Holy Spirit to help you see that Jesus is sufficient for all of your needs. He is who you were made to long for. So one, pray for that. But don't just pray. Second, listen to the promises of God, not your feelings. Again, listen to the promises of God, not your feelings. I defined contentment in terms of confidence, not emotion. And that was very intentional. Because the reality is, there will be times when, as John Piper puts it, the darkness will not lift. You might be mourning the death of a loved one. You might be struggling through a season of deep depression. You might have just received a terrible prognosis from your doctor. In those times of nearly perpetual grief, don't allow your feelings to consume you. Acknowledge them. Even recognize that grief is appropriate and right given your circumstances. Real affliction warrants real grief. It is, grief is an acknowledgement that the world is not as it should be. Grief is not bad. But don't let the sentence end with that tragedy. Add a comma and remember, but God. And then think of his promises to you. Contentment is not incompatible with grief. That is something I personally really struggle to remember and believe. Contentment doesn't mean being happy all of the time, necessarily. That could very well be the fruit of it. It oftentimes is, but not necessarily. So please hear me when I say that. I have seen some extraordinary examples within this very church of some of you grieving while at the same time trusting in Christ. As you trust in him, trust that he is with you, that you trust that he will transform your suffering into your glory one day. Friends, that is Christian contentment, and it's beautiful. It is worship, and it shows how precious God is to you. Christian contentment means keeping the promises of God in front of ourselves and each other, even when it hurts, and even when it's hard, and even when it's painful. It means we read and memorize scripture even when it's cold to us because we know that it is still true whether we feel like it is or not. It means that we refuse to believe lies even, again, when they feel true because we know that God's word contradicts them and God's word is truth. It might take some time for your emotions to catch up with your trust. It might even take years. But but it is trust that is the evidence of your faith and contentment, not the positive emotions necessarily. So again, if you want to seek to pursue contentment, pray to the Spirit 
for affection for Christ and put the promises of God before yourself. Listen to them, not the feelings and emotions, the turbulence within yourself. I want to wrap up with this encouragement to you. Paul had to learn contentment. He says that in verses 11 and 12. In other words, it is neither natural nor easy to achieve contentment. But trust that you will find it if you set your hopes in Christ. At times, you will face difficult situations and yet be amazed by the peace that the Holy Spirit offers you in those moments. I'm sure many, if not all of you, have already experienced that at times. In great hardship, you're amazed by the peace of mind and heart that you experience in those moments. You will experience that again if you hope in Christ. But also, there will be times when peace and contentment seem impossibly far away from you. Maybe that's the place you're at right now. In those moments, remember that even your discontentment has been nailed to the cross. That is the incredible beauty of the gospel, that Jesus has freed you from the hold and guilt of discontentment. So even as we fight it, we can trust that when we fail to fight it, we are still free of the guilt and shame of that. There's still salvation and eternal life found in Jesus Christ. You guys, when our confidence fails, he does not. For those of us who are united with him, it really is well with our souls, even if it doesn't feel like it. That's the beauty of the gospel. So let's hope in that today. Would you bow your heads with me to pray? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for Paul's words here. Thank you for the reminder of where true contentment is found, where our hope rests, where our identity rests. It is not in our circumstances. It's not in our achievements. It is in Jesus Christ. And thank you that it is not only in him, but that we can never lose him. God, thank you for that grace. Thank you for that display of your love and kindness and mercy. Let us always trust in him and rejoice in that gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.